Good evening. Well, tomorrow, of course, it is April the 1st. And are we all going to be made April Fools of? Well, at least I think many of us will feel we're being taken for a ride. Just think about this. Council tax bills due to rise to an average of £2,000 per household. Energy bills to rise by £700 per average household. Broadband bills set to rise by 10%. Mobile phone charges due to go up by 12%. And, of course, all of that before the national insurance increases and dividend tax rises come in with the new financial year in just a few days' time. And today, another threat has emerged. Vladimir Putin has signed a decree saying that buyers of Russian gas, and I quote, must open ruble accounts in Russian banks. And this applies from tomorrow. Yes, from April the 1st, Germany, who get 50% of their gas from Russia, without which not only would the lights go out, but German industry would close down. They have got to pay in rubles or, or he won't sell them the gas. It's just as simple as that. So much for sanctions, eh? Because in many ways, Putin's got more power over countries like Germany than the other way around. It also makes you begin to wonder and worry about who is actually winning this war. But, I hear you ask, how will this affect me? Well, potentially, it could push the price of gas a lot higher still. So tell me, at home, how worried are you about what's to come over the course of the next few weeks? Let me know. Farage at gbnews.uk. So it is a genuine cost-of-living crisis. And I'm going to start with a case study uh, of a couple who really, I think, are very, very concerned with their circumstances. Joining me now is Debbie Cooper. Her husband, Mark, has motor neuron disease, and they're worried about how much their electricity bill will go up as Mark has vital equipment that he needs on at all times. Thank you very much, Debbie, for joining me this evening. Thank you. Hi. So tell me, just how much electricity do you need? Um, we need a lot of electricity. Mark has motor neurons disease and he has a lot of equipment in the home. Um, he's on a 24-hour ventilator, which obviously 24 hours, but he needs the backup one on at all times as well. Um, all of his equipment, equipment, a coffee cyst, he has an electric wheelchair. Everything's electric, electrical. It needs to be plugged in, but it has to be plugged in twice with two, two different appliances. Yeah. Um, so it's a major worry for me and Matt because we budget our our bills, and if I don't have the heating or the electric on, it's you know these appliances and ventilators and things keep Mark alive. Basically, I can't turn the heating down because basically he needs his body temperature at a certain um, warmth to keep him warm. Otherwise, he could get a chest infection, and obviously that could cause him to go into hospital because of his. Um, you know, but just because of his condition. Yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds very, very difficult. Tell me, I mean, without wishing to uh, pry too deeply into the no. family finances, um, how, I mean, how difficult has it been to pay these bills uh, before these big price rises? Very difficult because, as I say, I'm a 24-hour carer for Mac. I also work and the 
the cost of what you get for just the carer's allowance alone isn't I have to wait because that pays less than three pound a day to um when you when you calculate the costs of the carer's yeah. allowance it's less than three pound a day so I have to work as well to be able to pay the bills because there's only me obviously because Matt's ill he's he's paralyzed and he's got no speech or anything so it and have you ah we have lost Debbie we've lost the link and I'm sorry about that but I think you all get the message there's a woman obviously desperately desperately worried uh, limited means and she won't yet quite know, of course, she won't yet quite know exactly how much those price rises are going to be. But they're going to be very, very significant indeed. And I, I kind of think a lot of people are living in fear. I popped into the local supermarket on Tuesday morning to buy a couple of bits of bobs, woman working on the checkout till I've known her for 20 years. And I said, how are you? And I got a quite sarcastic answer. I said, what's the matter? She said, well, we've just worked out we can't afford to go on summer holiday this year. We'd hoped after a couple of years of lockdown to get away, but we're just about managing. And that's even before the bills and the price rises come in. So uh, this is going to be very, very tough for millions of people. Of course, there are international affairs, uh, events such as Ukraine that have made a difference, but inflation was there before all of this happened. I'm hoping Debbie is back. OK, I'm on the line. Hello. Debbie, hi, I've got you back. Hi. Yeah, you were, you were saying that it was difficult uh, to pay these bills and you were explaining that the carer's allowance doesn't go all that far, that you have to go to work. Uh, do you know or do you have any idea what your next bills are going to look like? I, I don't even want to even open the mail when we receive it because it's just going to be extortion. I mean, we have three teenagers in the home as well. Obviously, they like to use the TVs and their appliances, but I'm forever having to say, you've got to turn the lights out now, turn your TV on when it's not on, because we're just worried. I need I need to save the electric or our gas for Mark, because he's the main priority at the moment. I just Debbie, how worried are you? Sorry? How worried are you? I'm very worried. I think we need some sort of stability in our energy cost, so we're able to keep our loved ones at home and look after them and not be worrying like we are worrying at the moment. We're, we're, I'm frightened to death. Is there any, is there any extra help you can get with these bills that you can see? I have looked into it and at the moment I can't get any help with Matt's condition at all. People have told me that there's, there's different schemes but I've not been able to find anything to, to help us. We pay, I pay everything on my own. I don't get no help from anything. Debbie, uh, I'm, I'm very sorry uh, for your circumstances. Incredibly difficult. You're under a great deal of pressure. Uh, and thank you for coming on and opening up to us and explaining just how difficult and how really quite frightening this is for you. Thank you for joining us on GB News. Well, that is a pretty heart-rending case. Um, it, 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 is, it is deeply, deeply unpleasant. The sad thing is there are going to be so many people in her position. And we've been going around the country with Farage at large and this whole issue of energy bills, worry, fear. But she expressed that when the letter comes through um, the front door, she's actually going to be even nervous to open it. I wonder whether people like Debbie, I wonder how they really feel about the 25% surcharge that goes on to her electricity bill to pay 
for social and renewable obligations. I wonder how she feels about the 5% on top of that, on all the household bills uh, for heating and for energy, given that it was a very specific Brexit promise to remove that 5%, and yet it's not been done. And I don't know. It's one of those areas where you'd have thought the Labour Party could make some political capital, yet they don't even want to try. In a moment, we will talk about wind energy, what it's contributed towards our electricity and our power in the course of the last week. We'll talk about those two wells up in the northwest of England that had to be filled up with concrete but have had a last-minute reprieve. All of that in just a moment. I asked, how worried are you about this cost-of-living crisis? Daryl says, let's ramp up the fossil fuel production ASAP and get those Rolls-Royce mini-reactors in action. Good in theory, but of course new nuclear projects do take many years to come online. One viewer says, it just goes to prove that we should have had our own industries. One of the reasons we've got too few industries is because we've been paying too much for energy, which is why we've seen aluminium production leave our shores, much steel production go, chemical plants disappear. We've made ourselves industrially uncompetitive. But many in this government think that's terrific because the goods are manufactured somewhere else, then exported back to us, and we can say our total CO2 output as a country is down. But globally, it's even higher. It isn't that clever, really, when you think about it. Ryan says, I'm not worried, as it looks like we may be finally about to start fracking again. We're going to discuss that in a moment, don't worry. Another says, let's get fracking, use nuclear power and start using the natural oil under the North Sea. Christopher says to me, the Conservatives have failed the nation in energy security. Well, I tell you what, it is not just the Conservatives because Labour were heading in this direction when they were in government too. It's been one of those issues where virtually everybody in Westminster and everybody across mainstream media agrees. And anybody, of course, that even dares to question is a denier. And what we need is good, open, honest debate on this and every other major subject. Now, we've talked a lot about wind energy, uh, as the Prime Minister has talked about us becoming the Saudi Arabia of wind. Looking at some figures, I said last week on this programme that a great big anti-cyclone, a great big high pressure, was sitting over much of the United Kingdom. And last week, on March the 25th at 9am, wind was producing 2% of our energy. On Monday this week, at 9am, it was producing 0.5% of a percent, and for the entirety of last week, it produced 3%. And that, of course, is the problem with wind. The more wind turbines you build, the more you rely on them, the weaker your energy security, and the more you need to use gas. But there is a growing level of resistance and opposition on the Conservative backbenches amongst commentators in the press and one or two campaigns uh, that are out there running too. And it was interesting today to see that Quadrilla have been told they don't need to concrete up the two wells that they'd sunk in the northwest of England, the shale gas wells. Uh, and I wonder whether, is this an outbreak of common sense? I certainly hope so.
Well, joining me to discuss all of this is somebody that may take a slightly different view. It's Tom Burke, co-founder of the climate change think tank E3G. Tom, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Nice you know, to see you again. I'm all for, I'm all for renewable energy, uh, provided it's not subsidised by the taxpayer and provided it gives us a degree of security of supply. I mean, you have to admit, surely, that wind energy last week did let us down very badly. Uh, there was uh, very little wind last week. It's absolutely true. You're quite right about that. Uh, by the way, the light stayed on. Electricity still worked. Every factory was running. Everybody's home was still heated. So it didn't matter all that much. And that's because, actually, we have a very sophisticated grid that can cope with that. And what's more, <laughs> we can predict when the wind isn't going to blow and take measures to make sure that we keep the power on, which is not quite the same as the French uh, are able to do with their nuclear power stations going offline. About 16 of them are offline at the moment, unpredictably, which incidentally puts the price of gas up here because they have to use gas to substitute for their nuclear that doesn't work. So well, we have to use a lot of gas. When wind... We have to use, Tom, a lot of gas too. We use a lot of gas too when the wind doesn't blow. But the other point about wind power is it has, over the last couple of decades, substantially increased people's electricity bills. Is it reasonable for ordinary folk? Is it reasonable? No, I don't think you're right about that, Nigel. I don't think it's done that. Right at the beginning of when we started to try and bring wind on 10, 15 years ago, then it cost us a lot more. Right now, wind is providing cheaper electricity to the grid than gas or coal or indeed nuclear. So, I mean, it, well, it's not well, actually uh, putting people's bills up. It's bringing well, them I, back. You know, I, I have to say, I have to say the 25% surcharge on everyone's electricity bill uh, is a part of that package, and I don't like it. But, whoa, Tom... Whoa, 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 you... Wait, wait. There is, there is a charge on every generator for the grid which distributes electricity, whatever the source. So every source pays a fee, if you like, in order to get access to the grid. Wind pays it, solar pays it, so does gas, so does coal, so does nuclear. That's just a... So you can't just pick one figure out and bang it in at somebody. You've got to look at how the well, whole system well, works. Well, they the are called... works that way. You know, this 25% are called renewable and social obligations. But let's, Tom, let's move on to another issue. And that is, Quadrilla had sunk these two wells in the northwest of England, and it did seem at a, at a moment when energy, you know, there is a global energy crisis and rising prices and people's rising bills, it did seem to me to be completely madness to fill them up with concrete. Is this at least... I mean, I, and I know that you're, you, know, you want as, as low a carbon future as possible, and I get that, and I understand that, but we are going to be using gas for many, many, many years to come. Is the fact Quadrilla have been told not to fill these wells up with concrete... Is that actually a common-sense thing in your view? No, it's not, and I'll tell you why. Because I think as important as driving carbon out of the economy is keeping bills down. If we don't keep bills down and to the lowest possible level, then we won't be able to drive carbon out of the economy because we won't have the public support to do that. Fracking, I mean, what's really revealing about fracking is the economic ignorance of a large number of Conservative MPs uh, who don't seem to understand that if you produce gas in this country, you sell it at the price it goes for in the global market. So whether well, we produce it from fracking well, or anything else, producing our own gas 
won't actually mails cheaper for people. Well, it has in America. It has in America, Tom Burke. In fact, in America, where they have produced, certainly in Trump's time, they were producing a lot of their own gas, and they turned America around from being an energy importer to an exporter. But gas prices in America right now are 50% of what they are in the UK. So actually, with government getting involved in this, we could give people cheaper energy. But surely, Tom, surely there's one point we will agree on. Doesn't it make sense for us to be energy, whatever source, but doesn't it make sense for us to be energy independent? I completely agree with you that the right thing to do is to take ourselves out of the trade in energy commodity markets. Completely agree with you about that. And the best way to do that is to get the government to spend the $9 billion uh, it promised in its lecture manifesto on improving energy efficiency in people's homes and not doing what it's done, which is actually give the money to uh, a bunch of uh, American consultants who managed to mess it up and wreck the project. So let's spend the money on the thing that will actually help get bills down. I think that's a very good idea. So I agree right. with you about the idea of reducing our, uh, reducing our vulnerability to uh, trade in global commodities. And final we also thought... agree about nuclear, by the way. Uh, Nigel, as yeah. I remember from the last time we talked. Yeah, yeah. Uh, final thought, Tom. If you were in charge, you would fill up those two wells in Lancashire with concrete, yeah? Yeah, they're not going to help us with the current problem because it's going to take us 10 years to turn those wells into something that could generate any gas anyway. Right. So I'm not worried about that right now. All right, Tom, thank you very much indeed. And there you are, viewers. I disagree with all of that, but we do disagree in an open and civil way. Now, just to think a little bit more about the implications of what Putin is saying, I'm joined, I'm pleased to say, by Angela Knight, former CEO of Energy UK. Angela, good evening. Good evening. So it looks like, it looks like, however many sanctions the European Union claimed to have put on onto Russia, um, he's really got Germany and Italy in one hell of a bind, hasn't he, from, from tomorrow? Yes, I think he has. Um, but I, I think there's a little bit more to it than meets the eye. I mean, it looks to me that uh, probably his rather clever lady, who's his central banker, has come up with a scheme for supporting the ruble, and that's been translated into, you know, the phraseology that Putin has used. And the reason I say that is because the ruble has indeed gone up, and so that's, that's good yeah. as far as he's concerned. The gas prices remain stable. So that means that those who are buying gas have had a look at this and thought, well, this isn't necessarily quite as bad as it looks. But nevertheless, the fundamental point is entirely correct, that uh, Germany and Italy and indeed Spain are very dependent on imported gas. And um, Putin, Russia, are a huge exporter. I do think that the way that Europe has played into the hands in this way of Russia and it's not a new policy of theirs, this has been going on for some years, has been very foolish. And whilst, you know, they flag that they're going to change, it's going to take some time. If he does stick to this, and if he literally does cut off supply from tomorrow of vast amounts of gas going in to Germany and going in to Italy, I mean, they're the two biggest users in Europe. Yeah. I mean, presumably, if he did that, the price of gas would just go through the roof. It would just go through the roof. And that's why I looked up to see what was happening to the wholesale price of gas. 
and what was happening to the ruble. I mean, as I understand it, it's all quite complicated. Um, you can pay, you being a country, uh, can still pay in your euros or your dollars, but you pay it to Gazprom Bank. How many of us knew there was such, such a thing called Gazprom Bank? And what's more, that's one of the few Russian banks that's not been cut off from the global financial system. Well, of course So, not. Yeah, <laughs> of course. So he well, gets his dollars, he gets his euros, but then, he, then, they, then they're traded in some form into rubles. And so he'll be better off in terms of the number of rubles he gets for any quantum of gas. Uh, he'll do a bit of supporting of the price of the ruble because he has to buy other things on the wholesale market and also, of course, flexed his muscles and, and, and turned around to Europe, and particularly, as you say, Germany and Italy, and, say, and said to them, I hold, the, I, I hold some key cards. You yeah. may think that you hold them against me, but I hold them against you. Very dangerous situation. Yeah, no, it is. What price sanctions? Final quick thought, if I may, uh, Angela. Our previous guest thought it would be a jolly good idea to pour concrete uh, down those two wells in Lancashire that were sunk by Quadrilla um, in, in order to try and begin a fracking industry. What say you? Well, um, the only thing I agreed with him was that it's going to take some time to get those wells working. But yep. do I think it's absolutely essential that we do some proper trials on those wells? The answer is yes, because the long term they will help in energy security in this country, as will better insulation, yes, as will nuclear power to back up uh, the wind, because however much it, it, you know, we all may support wind, it doesn't blow all the time. And you need an yep. awful lot of those big windmills to produce not a lot of electricity. And could I just say one thing, Nigel, before yeah. you switch me off? Go on. Uh, and that's this. Everybody is rightly focused on what it is that householders are going to uh, pay tomorrow. But most households, or 20-odd million, their energy prices are capped. Industries, not capped. They have to pay the costs of the wholesale market. Industry is big business for the UK. We have a lot of people employed by them, and we still make a lot of products ourselves. And so, to my mind, as much attention needs to be paid to industry and the consequences to them as to householders and the consequences to you and me and other people watching this programme. Angela, I agree with that entirely, and I did make the point earlier on this evening uh, that because of uncompetitive energy prices, we've lost too much of that kind of industry already. Angela, Absolutely. thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News again this evening. Thank you. Now, an extraordinary story. Uh, as we know, millions have fled Ukraine, nearly all women and children. The UK government has taken a rather different approach to many other countries, demanding on some basic checks and visas. But here is a really extraordinary story. And joining me to tell it is Charlie O'Connell from Paddy Wagon Tours in Ireland. Charlie, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Welcome to the show. Now, please share uh, with our audience uh, your journey to Ukraine to pick up vulnerable uh, women and children and bring them back to Ireland and the difficulties that you faced. Well, about 10 or 12 days ago, we came up with the idea that we've been sitting with a lot of idle buses for a number of years with COVID and all of that. And I said, well, look, we should head for the Ukraine and see, can we bring back, can we do something to help? And um, within a few days, we had 25 tonnes of um, stuff to bring over, medical, 
um, blankets, you name it. So we were able to fill the buses going over. And we were the first to bring mass numbers back. It had never been done. Trucks had gone over and so on. But we were going over and we were refilling with a human cargo coming yep. back. Now, going over, we were told, with a bit of paperwork, yes, we can go through the UK, which is the easiest route. You go Dublin, Holyhead, drive down to Harwich, cross in the wash, and you're in the north of Holland, and away you go. That's the easy way to go. However, we didn't want to take any chances with the uh, loads coming back, which is a human cargo, yeah. And we knew they'd be in difficult situations. I mean, some people on the buses coming back had their passports blown up in bombs that fell on their homes. Now, to mind, you know, their lack of English and everything else. So we were in contact with the Department of Justice here regularly, and they gave us the advice that, no, do not go through England and do not come back through England. There is one boat to France, which limited the number of buses we could bring. I had 15 lined up because there's full with um, trucks and all the rest that are avoiding going through the UK because of the difficulty with paperwork. So we were able to get five buses on the, um, the Irish ferries going over, and Brittany Ferries kindly sponsored all the human cargo coming back, gave them rooms, and were very humanitarian, gave them meals and all the rest. Just so shows, going through... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the breakdown of trust between the Irish and British governments, to the extent that the Irish government tell you don't do that, they might impound you, when actually all you were going to do was transship uh, through the... Yeah, they said there was, there was a chance that we would be hauled in in Harwich and impounded, and it may be even done for human trafficking. So, anyway, we, we, we made our way over to Warsaw, and as we got through the Polish border, we met a double-decker English coach yep. at the garage, because we were all fueling at the border, because fuel in Poland is 140 a litre euro, it's 240 in France. So you can imagine the cost of bringing five coaches over and back. It was incredulous. Uh, thankfully, we had kind sponsors who helped us. However, we said to the boys, initially we thought they were Northern Irish because it was a Northern Ireland registered coach, but they weren't, they were English. And they had 12 people on board and they were full to the roof with stuff, humanitarian aid. And we said, lads, how many are you picking back, picking up in Poland, bringing back? They said, nobody. They said, they won't let us in. It's too much hassle. It'll take us forever. We can't do any more. So we're going one way with one load. And we said, that's terrible. To bring a bus over here and not to be able to bring people back. Whereas we eventually had to go back through France and get the people we could back. Can I say, Charlie O'Connor, you've told that story incredibly well and well done, Paddy Wagon Tours, with what you've done. Thank you. Now, you know, we know this row, it's been going on and on, but there is a practical example of how things are perhaps not working very well. Uh, in response to this, we did get in touch with the Home Office and a government spokesman said, we are moving as quickly as possible to ensure that those fleeing Ukraine can find safety in the UK through the Ukraine Family Scheme and Homes for Ukraine. We have streamlined the process so valid passport holders do not have to intend in-person appointments before arriving in the UK, simplified our forms and boosted caseworker numbers while ensuring vital security checks are carried out. We continue to speed up visa processing across both schemes with 25,500 visas issued in the last three weeks alone and thousands more expected to come through these uncapped routes. Well, there we are. I thought Charlie, McConnell Charlie Connell told his story very, very well. 2016, the contest between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Do you remember this? 
deplorable was not a good day for Hillary. Crooked Hillary. She is a crooked one. Crooked. Well, they all said it was a disgrace. How dare Donald Trump call Hillary crooked? I mean, the Clintons, I mean, they're almost like royal family in America. Well, a few years on, the Federal Election Commission has fined $100,000 against the Democrat National Committee and Hillary Clinton's 26 campaign. And this follows an investigation where they claim they were paying legal expenses to a company, but actually they were hiring a bloke called Christopher Steele, to produce a dossier. And that dossier wasn't just full of inaccuracies. That dossier basically said Trump was linked with Russia. And so began the Russia conspiracy. So began the Russia hoax. We've seen it on both sides of the pond. Uh, I have to say, it even led to me being accused in Parliament under parliamentary privilege by the MP for Rhonda, Chris Brandt, the other day, of having earned an astonishing amount of money from the Russians in 2018 when I didn't earn a single penny. I did write to the Speaker, um, and he wrote me back a very nice letter, basically saying MPs can say what they like. And so the Russia hoax goes on. Now, we are going to cross over to Mark Stein, who was joining us at the top of the hour. Uh, Mark, tell me, what have you got on the show for us this evening? Well, I, I just want to say quickly, Nigel, that uh, that fine, barely five figures for Hillary, shows that they wrecked a whole presidency. They destabilized the whole presidency and they paid a joke fine. That was money well spent by the uh, crooked Hillary campaign. Uh, coming up, we've got lessons from the Falkland War, uh, which was a very consequential war. Uh, we will also be uh, looking at the abolition of biological sex which is uh, proceeding apace, and the Holy Bible has beaten the rap in court, which is good news if you're the kind of chap who's minded to quote scripture. It's not yet a hate crime. That's all coming up at the top of the hour, Nigel. As ever, stimulating stuff, Mark Stein, thank you. A few more of your thoughts. Dawn says, I'm very worried because it's showing how poor we have been with our energy in the name of green tax and net zero. Carol says, I give up. I truly do. Just let them have every penny I own. And Bob says, let's get out of the global gas market and set our own prices. It could be done. How well government would do it, I don't know. In a moment, it's Talking Pints. I'm going to be joined by Marco Longhi. He is the Member of Parliament for the Black Country seat of Dudley North, where we took Farage at Large just a few weeks ago. GB News Tavern has been declared open. Marco Longhi, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Dudley North, joins me. Welcome to the programme. Very, very much, good to see you. A 29 intake and somebody who'd done a lot of things before, you know, getting into politics. You've done a lot of local politics, though, hadn't you? I mean, you were a black country man. Yes. As I understand, you've got the black country badge. Absolutely. On your, on Wherever your, I go. On your lapel. <laughs> um, but local politics was your way into this, being a councillor, working your way up. Um, it's funny, isn't it? We, under, we underplay the importance of local councillors and local politics. Uh, I think so. And I would be minded to think that actually if most MPs spent at least some time 
in local government before looking at national politics. They'd be cutting their teeth at the, at the coalface. That's what we would certainly say in the black country, at the coalface. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, because that's where they can probably most make that very real, tangible difference to, to people's lives. And it was probably one of the most satisfying times for me uh, when I entered politics at that, at that stage. And you had some family history in local politics. Oh, yes, yes. So my, my grandfather was a coal miner yep. uh, in the black country, and I followed very much his lead. And he was like a second father to me in so many, so many different ways. He, both his parents were dead by the age of 10 or 11, and he was down the coal mines at the age of 14, pretending to be 18. Yeah. Not allowed, if not, and just to scratch a living. Hard days. And he, be he became the self-made man, working really, really hard. And, and every moment uh, I could spend uh, with him, uh, I did. And I took a lot of my approach to life uh, from, from the values that he taught me. And Dudley, and much of the black country, <clears throat> Walsall, all the rest of it, where yeah. you've been involved in politics and served as mayor there as well. Yeah. But heartland labour, you know, since 1918, since the boys came back from the front, it's been heartland labour and the coal mining communities. Yeah. Um, when did it start going wrong for labour in areas like Dudley? I think for many, many years, for, for decades, people probably thought that when, it, when election time arrived, they did the thing that their fathers and their grandfathers always did, which was to vote a certain way. And, uh, and I think over time people realised that actually they were being taken for granted. Yeah. If, at the crux of it all, people voted con you know, for Brexit and for the Conservative Party supporting Boris for many, many different reasons, whether it was illegal immigration, whether it was this, that or the other. And actually, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, lots of Labour voters just couldn't support Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I actually think it's because Labour ignored them. Mm. I, that's how I would sum it up. Well, I saw and, uh, it. I saw it, um, Marco. You know, they voted UKIP in big numbers. Yeah. They voted Brexit Party in big numbers. They voted... Yeah, Labour suddenly was a London party. It was disconnected. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. Brexit that's really brought these people into the Conservative yeah, I, fold, isn't it? Uh, yes. Yes, I think it, it, it is. And uh, because Boris, um, as, as a politician in particular also, I think, he's able to sprinkle that little bit of gold dust. He has that thing that a lot of politicians don't have, which is mm. something special. I can't quantify it into words. So there were a lot of things that came together for people uh, being able to vote uh, Conservative at the last election. But it, it was, it was some, it's something visceral, you know, for, for, for people. I was knocking on doors in 2019, and people would literally drag me into their home saying, mm. Marco, mm. I'm going to do something I've never, ever yeah, done before. Yeah, yeah. You need to just hold my hand and take me over the line. Will you do this, 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 and this? Mm. You know, illegal immigration was one of the things. And, 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 and so this is why I'm hell-bent on making sure that we keep to those promises, because otherwise there's a very serious danger that no, we'll, well, we'll punished. We will come back to that. And I, it's interesting because, you know, you've had a successful career. Yeah. You've made some money. You've done well. Yeah. But I, I noticed one of the things on your CV was that you joined an oil and gas exploration <laughs> company. I mean, I'm... Absolutely. You can't be a great friend of Lord Goldsmith's or Carrie's oh, or anyone oh like that, I don't uh, suppose. Well. <laughs> I mean, you heard the debate, I think, that we were having earlier on tonight, yeah. you know, about Quadrilla. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is there a chance that the Prime Minister will change his mind on all of this? Because this increase in people's domestic bills actually is, is, is making us focus, isn't it, on the cost of some <clears> of these renewables? 
A absolutely. So, you know, we, we, we've had a war against COVID and we've, we've now got a war on, on very high energy prices, which actually means a war on poverty in so many ways. Mm. Uh, so to me, uh, I mean, as a conservative, as a free marketeer and as a, as, as a pragmatic libertarian, a lot of the things we did during COVID is something that uh, I, I never thought I would ever do. And I think that in wartime scenarios, what we actually need to do is become more pragmatic about our way forward. And what I really dislike about the eco-warrior dogmatic agenda is that... Do you mean Boris's agenda? Uh, I, I mean the Zach Goldsmith's agenda. Well, well, I mean, Mr Johnson, your leader, said we should become the Saudi Arabia of wind. Um, I, look, you know, uh, I want my children and my grandchildren and their children to live in a decarbonised economy, and I think the move towards renewables is the right thing. But it's got to be done in a pragmatic, step-by-step -step way. That, that is what I would say. And I think most people would probably agree with that common sense approach. And it's about common sense. It's when you have that binary conversation that if you suddenly start saying that actually we need to be looking at our energy mix that's for uh, risk reasons, for strategic reasons, must include some fossil fuel, i.e. gas and oil, that all of a sudden you're branded as a horrible person oh, yeah. who, who oh, yeah. is against climate, you know, climate oh, yeah. change yeah. denier and all of that yeah, kind yeah. of thing, is ridiculous. You know, and I can easily see how the Zach Goldsmiths would probably uh, label me that way, but I'm not. I just think we need the right energy misc, mix, the yep. right strategy. And if you look at what Oliver Dowden has said, and you might have seen Zach Smol Goldsmith and Oliver Dowden uh, being a little unhappy with each other, yeah. and the last couple of Prime Minister's questions where the conversation and the tone towards fossil fuels mm. has changed. So I'm very happy with that. No, yeah, I mean, and, look, it's, it, I, I'm with you. It's a step in the right direction, yeah. but as we know... Uh, you know, promises, yeah. uh, hints need to become reality. I, what was interesting, Marco, was, you know, and obviously this red wall phenomenon yeah. is something that I follow very, very intimately. And, and all those seats like yours where I spent so much of my time campaigning over the years because yeah. I realised that disconnect with old Labour that we've talked about. We came to Dudley. We did an event in Dudley a few weeks ago. Sadly, you had parliamentary business. We always invite the local MP. And they often come, but it needs to be the right day. <clears throat> What was interesting with that audience we met in Dudley, you know, really good people. Salt of the earth. Yeah, just great people. As and yep. people stayed afterwards for chats and pictures and conversations. Yep. But what did come out were some real concerns. Yeah. Real concerns about the cost of living. People just not knowing quite what these bills are going to look like. <clears throat> and to business. Um, and, and, and also concerns that Dudley, it's lost so much. You know, I know the world moves on and I know the industries come and industries go and that's been going on since the sort of dawn of time almost, yeah. that things change. But a feeling that Dudley's lost everything. It's lost the well-paid jobs. Mm. It's, it's, it's lost the things that it did so well. Yeah. And we keep talking, at least the government and the press keep talking, about levelling up. Yeah. I mean, Dudley is a prime candidate for someone that needs to be levelled up. That's right. How can it happen? Well, it can happen with with the right strategy and the right funding following it. And I think we are on that journey. Uh, my concern is that when you have to turn such a big tanker around, it takes time. I would have said in ordinary peacetime, if we could put it that way, yep. you would probably need two parliaments. The fact that we've actually been paralysed by COVID for two years actually makes me very worried because 
it will, I think it'll be difficult for people to see major changes mm. in the next two no, years, I, I, and that's when the election will take place. Well, I get the logic of that. And the other problem <clears throat> I think you've got, really interesting, and it wasn't just Dudley, you've seen it everywhere, but it was strong in Dudley, was a feeling that the GP, the family GP, yeah. the most respected member yeah. of the local community, somebody that everyone looked up to and respected, suddenly... Over half of the people in places like Dudley yeah. are losing respect for GPs, are losing trust and belief that the National Health Service yeah. is really capable yeah. of doing the right job. And it just gave me some echoes of that sort of 1995, 1996 period, not in Dudley, but in many other parts of the country, yeah. where the Conservatives lost swathes of seats to Tony Blair. By the way, I'm not suggesting Keir Starmer is Tony Blair. He's not. <laughs> um, but that worry that always through the years for the Conservative Party, health potentially was a bad issue for the Conservatives. Mm. What do you say to your constituents who say, I can't get a GP appointment? Uh, I quite agree. And, and it's a perfect storm. I've recently conducted a GP survey and the vast majority of responses, if not all responses, I'm still keeping it going, which is why I, I'm not going to give you uh, uh, detailed numbers now. But that issue of having being able to get a face-to-face -face yeah. appointment. Yeah. And, and, and most people... I've it matters to people, doesn't it? matters to people. And, and they want to see probably the same GP within the same practice yeah. Yeah. because they develop that sort of relationship. Yeah. And those relationships have been changing now for a very, very long period of time. Mm. Mm. I mean, if I had things my way, dare I say it, I would be looking at GP contracts, I would be looking at... Many different things. Do you mean the? Do you mean Mr. Blair's reforms? Oh yes, yes. I'd be looking at the at the BMA, and I'd be looking at other things. And yeah, because you know GPs, you know there are some heroic GPs out there, and I, I don't want to besmirch everyone and and, and paint everyone with the same uh, no. brush, as it were. Um, but actually, uh, we have seen GPs now starting to behave and still talk about COVID and still doing telephone uh, conversations where so many things can be missed. So I'm completely with my mm. uh, residents over this and I will work as hard but as But they're going to blame can. you if it doesn't get better. I, they will blame and they me can also, and the government. And, and, and they can also look, Marco. And I wouldn't blame you know, them. You know, no, no, I mean, I, I, very honest with you. I, Keir Starmer, for all his faults, and he can't say what a woman is, for example, but for all his faults, he's pretty much expunged the hard left. He's done a good job on that. I think he deserves credit for it. That sort of very unpleasant, nasty Corbynista wing. They haven't got the influence that they used to have. Keir Starmer is now the party of cutting taxes. The Tories are the party of putting taxes up. <laughs> you believe that? <laughs> well, but it's true. I mean, you know, it's no good Rishi Sunak saying I'm a low-tax guy and then putting taxes <clears> up for everybody, <throat> freezing the bans, dragging all sorts of people into higher-rate tax, and that's what's coming, as you well know, over the next year or two. Uh, you've actually got Starmer. I've never heard Labour be pro-business, but they sort of do sound quite pro-business. Uh, they could even, uh, on health, they're not in a bad position either because they'll say, look, you know, it always goes wrong under the Tories. Um, uh, energy, I'm, they, they haven't faced up to energy at all. But there is, I, I, I put this to you, that a lot of people who voted Conservative in 2019 lent their vote to the Conservatives because actually finishing this agony of Brexit yeah. and, and the illegal immigration and all those things were subsets, really, of, as yeah. people saw it at the time. <clears throat> but there's a danger, isn't there, that the red wall doesn't hold? Uh, there is a danger, and I have been talking about this danger probably since the day I was elected, and uh, over specific things in particular. 
and I am, I am, I am pleased since the recent shake-up and changes at number 10 that I do sense there's a more receptive uh, uh, number 10. There are different people in place. And I really hope, for all of our sakes, that those changes now are going to start to be acted upon. We won't be able to use COVID as an excuse. It did paralyze us for two years. And I hope some voters mm. will recognize the huge effort well, and the personal effort in particular by the prime minister that he put in well, we'll find out. to save the country and we'll businesses find out. and individuals. Yeah. Now, there is an Italian side, of course, <coughs> to your family, as well as the black countryside. And you're a Hence soccer fan, you're a Lazio fan. And of course, it's true. Did you go watch Paul Gascoigne when he played for? I did. <laughs> I absolutely did. And those were very special moments. Yeah, he was. Uh, it's a shame what's happened to him in some ways, but he was a bit of a star, wasn't he? He was. He had something special. Final thought. Do you enjoy being a member of Parliament? It is the best job in the world for all of the difficulties that we face, for all of the fact that we can be vilified, as you know. Uh, for me, it, being able to represent a community and do my best for them and get the occasional thank yous that do come through makes it extra special. Almost believable. Mark O'Longhi, <laughs> thank you very much for joining me on Talking Pints. Very good. <laughs>